Hi there. In this episode, we'll go over delusional disorder and then schizophrenia as well. When we go over schizophrenia, I'll go into more of the specifics of the pharmacology behind it because there's quite a bit to go over. Starting off with delusional disorder, this is known as the presence of one or more non-bizarre delusions for at least one month in an individual who, except for their delusions, does not appear odd or bizarre and is not markedly functionally impaired. So what we're trying to get at here is that the the symptoms or the delusions are non-bizarre. That's kind of the first thing to pick out in that other than those d- delusions that are non-bizarre, they don't appear to be really having any other kind of condition or any other kind of disorder. Where that'll really come into play where they are having marked functional impairments is going to be schizophrenia. So looking at that non-bizarre delusion, there are two different types. There are delusions and non-bizarre delusions, which is in this delusional disorder. Delusions would be a fixed belief or an external reality despite evidence to the contrary. So there's evidence that what somebody believes is wrong, but they still believe it. It's still this externally just completely fixed belief, and that would be a delusion. Non-bizarre delusion is a false belief that is plausible, but highly unlikely. A common non-bizarre delusion that I've seen come up on exams would be that a spouse is convinced that their spouse is having an affair with a neighbor. So this will often be a vignette that's saying an older individual, maybe they're 70, 80 years old, is convinced that their spouse is cheating on them. There isn't necessarily, I mean, this is plausible, but it's highly unlikely based on what the vignette is is telling us. But maybe that's just a key into or an example of what a non-bizarre delusion might might present as. And then the most common type of delusion is actually persecutory. The most common comorbid mental health illness associated with delusional disorder is also going to be depression. So those two little bits, I think it's important to keep in mind when thinking about delusional disorder. It might be in the vignette, someone who is depressed, having this persecutory delusion. And, you know, I think there might be some good giveaways along with other things we'll go over as to being a, a diagnosis of delusional disorder. The average age of onset for this is going to be in the 40s, but the range is really anywhere from 18 to 90 years old, so there's not really a cutoff. There's also a risk factor included with family history of paranoid personality disorder. I think, again, that kind of fits in with that most common type of delusion that I had said, because you often see that in paranoid personality disorder. Going into the diagnostic criteria, it's just going to be A, B, C, D, and E. I'll just go over them all really quickly, but I'll point out the ones that I think are most important. A, at least one delusion lasting at least one month. B, criterion A for schizophrenia are not met. I'll go over schizophrenia next, and then there should not be any significant hallucinatory experiences. C, apart from delusions and its ramifications, behavior is not obviously odd or bizarre, and there is no significant impairment of function. You'll see that that's a big difference between delusional disorder and schizophrenia. D, if manic or major depressive episodes have occurred, these have been brief to the duration of delusional periods, as in they're only occurring during that time, And then E, it's not explained by another psychiatric disorder, medical condition, medications, or substance abuse. The last little bit to go over in delusional disorder is just the treatment and management, and then we can go into schizophrenia. The first line pharmacologic treatment of delusional disorder is going to be second generation antipsychotics. Individual psychotherapy may be additive in some patients rather than group therapy, but I think the main thing to keep in mind is that the first-line pharmacologic therapy in delusional disorder is going to be second-generation antipsychotics. So now we can go into schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is described as a disorder of abnormal thinking, behavior, and emotion. When thinking about schizophrenia, I think it's important to split the type of symptoms that a patient is having into the positive and negative symptoms. 
positive symptoms are thought to be due to excess dopamine in the mesolimbic pathway, and negative symptoms are due to a dopamine imbalance in mesocortical pathways. I did notice that going through my exams that the mesolimbic in the mesocortical pathways were something that was important to, to know well. Positive symptoms are associated with the mesolimbic pathway. The mesolimbic pathway transmits dopamine from the midbrain to the ventral striatum. It includes the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with motivations, emotions, and rewards. This is thought to be responsible for positive symptoms of schizophrenia, which are reduced with antipsychotic use. Negative symptoms are associated with the mesocortical pathway. The mesocortical pathway transmits dopamine from the midbrain to the prefrontal cortex. Hypofunction of this pathway is thought to be responsible for the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. The way I think about those negative symptoms are as these symptoms are taken away from normal behavior, and then the positive symptoms, these symptoms are added to normal behavior. So the positive symptoms might be hallucinations, delusions, and disorganized speech. So these are things that are added to normal behavior. The negative symptoms, again, taken away from normal behavior, this may be absence of normal cognition, affect flattening, anhedonia, and asociality. In terms of risk factors, schizophrenia is more common in men, and there's actually a better prognosis when schizophrenia is associated with positive symptoms, later age at onset, acute onset, female sex, and a paranoid behavior. Then there's worse prognosis when there are negative symptoms, early age of onset, gradual onset, and then male sex. So something to keep in mind that more common in men, and there's a better prognosis associated with those things like positive symptoms, later age of onset, acute onset, female sex, and a paranoid behavior. And then there's the worst prognosis associated with negative symptoms, early age of onset, gradual onset, and then male sex. There is actually a drug or substance that is associated with an increased risk of schizophrenia, and that's actually going to be cannabis use. Cigarette smoking is also associated with increased risk of schizophrenia, but cannabis use is the one that most often will come up in examination. And then there's an increased risk for individuals born in March. Very weird thing to know and maybe an odd thing to memorize. So if it sticks, great. If not, that's probably just fine. But it did come up on an exam for me. And the question was, an individual born in which month is going to have an increased risk for schizophrenia? And it's going to be March. Moving on into the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia. It's going to be two or more of the following five symptoms for at least six months. The symptoms would include positive symptoms such as hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, and negative symptoms. The main thing I would keep in mind there is that the symptoms must be present for at least six months, and at least one of these symptoms must be hallucinations, delusions, or disorganized speech. So of those five symptoms, at least two of them need to be there, and at least one of those need to be a hallucination, a delusion, or disorganized speech, and they must manifest for at least one month. Kind of a lot, but really the main thing I would keep in mind is that for at least six months, two or more of those following five symptoms need to be present. At least one of them needs to be a hallucination, delusion, or disorganized speech, and at least one of those need to be present for at least one month. Patients with schizophrenia must have impaired function in one or more major areas of life differing from delusional disorder in which there is no significant impairment in function. Symptoms are not due to the effects of a substance, medication, or medical condition. I had said before that one of those potential five symptoms would be hallucinations or could be hallucinations. The most common type of hallucination found in schizophrenia is going to be auditory. That might be something like the sound of a voice, often heard in the third person, or can be command hallucinations. The other types of hallucinations might be visual, 
olfactory, tactile, somatic, or gustatory. The delusions that might be seen could be things like persecutory, which is person or force is interfering with them, observing them, or wishes to harm them, reference, control, grandiose, nihilism, erotomania, jealousy, or doubles. Probably not the most important thing to keep all of those in mind or necessarily knowing what each one of those means. It's important to know, but the main thing I would keep in mind is that the most common type of hallucination in schizophrenia is going to be an auditory hallucination. Now going into the treatment and management of schizophrenia. The pharmacotherapy, it's actually not too difficult to go over, but there's going to be quite a bit when I'm going into the pharmacology of schizophrenia because there's multiple medications and I'll go over the mechanism of action of those. But just looking at the treatment of schizophrenia, the first line is going to be second generation antipsychotics. This would be a medication like risperidone, olanzapine, quetiapine, ziprazidone, eripiprazole, or loracidone. Another question that you might get is which drugs are going to be most effective for positive symptoms? That's going to be first-generation antipsychotics. This would be medications like haloperidol, droperidol, clopromazine, or perfenazine. These first-generation antipsychotics have an increased risk for extrapyramidal symptoms, which is going to be EPS, just another way to say that, tardive dyskinesia, and then neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So I will go over those first-generation antipsychotics and the second generations more specifically when I go over the pharmacology of schizophrenia in just a bit, but a question might come up asking what the most effective treatment for positive symptoms will be medication-wise. That will be first-generation antipsychotics, but the first-line pharmacotherapy for schizophrenia will actually be second-generation antipsychotics. Looking at acute psychoses, medication management of acute psychoses would be a medication like risperidone or aripiprazole. Those two are both second-generation antipsychotics, and they're appropriate choices due to their relatively favorable side effect profiles, another thing that I'll go over in just a bit. And then medication management for severely agitated psychotic symptoms would be IM, so intramuscular haloperidol, intramuscular olanzapine, intramuscular zipracidone, and intramuscular aripiprazole. So that would cover the treatment of schizophrenia. So I would have right now just gone over delusional disorder and schizophrenia, looking at what the differences are between the two, the treatment of both, how they both present. Now what I'd like to do is go over the pharmacology of schizophrenia. This isn't saying that these medications are only used in schizophrenia. The reason I'm bringing this up now is because I think we're diving a little bit deeper into these antipsychotic medications with a disorder like schizophrenia. So what I'm going to do is split this up between the second generation antipsychotics the first generation antipsychotics, I'll go over clozapine more specifically, and then I'll go over the adverse effects of them all. So hopefully this helps and we can start off with the second generation antipsychotics. The mechanism of action of these second generation antipsychotics or SGAs is that they are dopamine receptor antagonists in the ventral striatum of the brain and they are serotonin receptor antagonists as well. So they also have histaminic, muscarinic, and alpha adrenergic antagonism, but Mainly, they are antagonists at the dopamine and serotonin receptors, increasing dopamine release in the prefrontal cortex. With SGAs, there is a lower risk of extrapyramidal or EPS adverse side effects compared to first-generation antipsychotics or FGAs, but increased risk of metabolic adverse effects in SGAs. Those metabolic adverse effects might include hyperlipidemia, weight gain, hyperglycemia, and hypertension. Just a quick differentiator between SGAs second generation and FGAs first generation is that second generations antagonize serotonin and dopamine. First generations only provide dopamine antagonism. So dopamine is particularly beneficial in positive symptom relief, 
while serotonin is beneficial in negative symptom relief. This is why first generations, which are only providing dopamine antagonism, are said to be better at treating positive symptoms in a patient with schizophrenia. I talked before about the many side effects that antipsychotics might have. Going quickly over the second generation antipsychotics, the two medications that have a higher risk or higher incidence of movement disorders would be risperidone, and then a higher incidence or higher risk of prolactinemia or hyperprolactinemia would be, again, risperidone and paliperidone. So very similar sounding medications, but a higher incidence of movement disorders, so that was risperidone, higher incidence of hyperprolactinemia, again, risperidone and paliperidone. The medication or the SGA that has a lower incidence of movement disorders is going to be quetiapine. The SGA with a higher incidence of weight gain and diabetes, olanzapine. The SGA with an increased risk for agranulocytosis and myocarditis is going to be clozapine. I'll go over that one more specifically in a bit. The SGA that is best for medication refractory schizophrenia, again, that's going to be the clozapine. So a good drug, beneficial for medication refractory schizophrenia, but increased risk for that agranulocytosis and myocarditis. Again, I'll go over that in just a bit. There are two medications that are less likely to cause significant weight gain, and one of those also has a risk of causing prolonged QT interval. The two that are less likely to cause significant weight gain would be ziprazidone and aripiprazole. The medication ziprazidone also has a higher risk of causing a prolonged QT interval. And the last SGA that I'll go over quick is that loracidone is safer for use in pregnancy. So those are kind of all over the place. I know there's a lot of different side effects that are found. I'm just kind of going over the main things that are found and, and the main things you might want to keep an eye on. So looking at movement disorders, hyperprolactinemia, which ones are less likely to cause movement disorders, are more likely to cause weight gain, diabetes, the medication that's at an increased risk for causing agranulocytosis, prolonged QT intervals. It's a lot. But just maybe re-listening to that section that I had just gone over, I think could be helpful. And then making kind of your own little chart as I've done, I think was, was also helpful. There wasn't necessarily a rhyme or reason that made all of these fit in. I couldn't necessarily think of a mnemonic to go over with all of these. But it is important to know which medications, which of these SGAs have particularly increased side effects. Moving on into the first generation antipsychotics or FGAs. They are most effective in benefiting patients with positive symptoms. There is an increased risk of extrapyramidal symptoms, EPS, tardive dyskinesia, and then the neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So it's possible to occur in any antipsychotic, but the FGAs, the first generations, have the higher risk of causing those, whereas the second generations had an increased risk of causing metabolic symptoms. And then of those first generation antipsychotics, the ones that have the highest association with extrapyramidal symptoms, EPS, which I'll go over in just a bit, is haloperidol, flufenazine, and perfenazine. Haloperidol of those three will be the most common. I think now we can actually just go into clozapine. So clozapine in itself is actually a second generation antipsychotic, but I want to go over it separately because I think that there's some, some specifics that are important to keep in mind. So clozapine can actually decrease suicide risk. It's unique that it suppresses tardive dyskinesia, whereas other antipsychotics have a possible cause of that. It is most effective for the treatment of treatment-resistant psychoses. And then there are two major concerning or, or two main concerning adverse effects of clozapine, and that's going to be myocarditis and then agranulocytosis. Because of those side effects, especially the agranulocytosis, monitoring is very important. So before initiating treatment with clozapine, the patient's baseline absolute neutrophil count must be 1,500 or greater for the general population, and it should be regularly monitored with a CBC for the duration of that patient's therapy. 
in a patient taking clozapine, it is actually possible to see an increased cardiac troponin and an increased ESR or serum erythrocyte sedimentation rate. And then on an EKG, there's actually a potential to see nonspecific ST changes. So it is a good medication, but used in the right way. It's not necessarily first line at all, but in that treatment resistant psychosis, clozapine will be a medication that's being used. Now I think we can go into the adverse effects of the antipsychotics. The main adverse effects of all of these antipsychotics could be extrapyramidal symptoms or EPS. Again, higher likelihood with FGAs like haloperidol, less likely with SGAs. The other ones might include hyperprolactinemia, metabolic adverse effects. Those are more common with SGAs. You also might see acute T prolongation, anti-HAM effects. The HAM being antihistaminic, antiadrenergic, and anti-muscarinic. And then neuroleptic malignant syndrome. The symptoms of EPS are going to be things like acute dystonia, Parkinsonism, akathisia, and tardive dyskinesia. I'll go over all those really quickly. So acute dystonia, that's going to be muscle spasms of the face, neck, tongue, and other muscles leading to abnormal movements or postures, as well as trouble swallowing. Acute dystonia will be managed with anticholinergics such as benstropine or diphenhydramine. Alternative to an anticholinergic might be amantadine. Parkinsonism, this will be something like arresting tremor, rigidity, bradykinesia. The management of Parkinsonism symptoms would be, again, anticholinergics. Akathisia would be sustained feelings of motion or restlessness, may occur after one to three months of use of an antipsychotic. The management of akathisia would be benzodiazepines or beta blockers. And then tardive dyskinesia, this is repetitive, involuntary, stereotypical movements like grimacing, chewing, lip smacking, and then writhing movements of the hands. The management of tardive dyskinesia would be stopping high-potency dopamine blockers and switch to SGAs. Clozapine would actually be preferred as that SGA because it actually decreases tardive dyskinesia. It has other adverse effects that we had gone over that doesn't make it first line just to treat all patients with any kind of schizophrenia or psychosis with that second generation antipsychotic. But in this case, if tardive dyskinesia were to present, clozapine would actually be preferred. The most common type of EPS symptom would be akathisia. Again, that's that sustained feeling of motion or restlessness. And that would cover the EPS symptoms pretty well, I think enough to be able to take an exam and, and have a pretty good idea of what those might be. So anytime that I had mentioned a drug potentially having an increased risk of causing EPS, it could be any of those things that, that I had just discussed. The metabolic adverse effects, these are more common in second generation antipsychotics over first generation antipsychotics. This might include, like I had said, hyperlipidemia, weight gain, especially with olanzapine and clozapine actually, hyperglycemia and hypertension, again, especially with olanzapine and clozapine. The anti-HAM effects that I had said before, this was antihistaminic, antiadrenergic, and anti-muscarinic side effects. The antihistaminic side effects would be weight gain and sedation. Anti-adrenergic would be orthostatic hypotension, and the anti-muscarinic or anti-cholinergic side effects would be anti-slud. So I've heard this before in the past when you think about cholinergics and anti-cholinergics. Cholinergics would be symptoms like slud, salivation, lacrimation, urination, and defecation. With anti-cholinergic or anti-muscarinic, we're looking at anti-slud. So this might be dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention, and then you might actually see visual problems pronounced with the use of theoridazine and clopromazine. And then the last of the adverse effects that I'll go over is neuroleptic malignant syndrome or NMS. This is a syndrome characterized by muscle rigidity, impairment of sweating, hyperpyrexia, autonomic instability, increased white blood cells, rhabdomyolysis, and all of this may be very life-threatening. 
The typical finding on an EEG in patients with NMS would be generalized slow wave activity, and then NMS is suspected when any two of the four cardinal features appear in the setting of antipsychotic use or dopamine withdrawal. And these four cardinal features include mental status change, rigidity, fever, and dysautonomia or autonomic dysfunction. The management of neuroleptic malignant syndrome will be prompt, immediate discontinuation of the antipsychotic, that's the first thing you do, as well as supportive, which is IV fluids and cooling blankets, benzodiazepines, especially if agitated, along with dantrolene, which can be added in moderate to severe cases, and it may be followed up by adding dopamine agonists, like bromocryptine or amantadine. So I know this was a lot, some of it was just trivial things, especially going over the pharmacology at the end there. I wouldn't necessarily commit all of it to memory. A lot of it's very hard also to listen to and not see and visualize and maybe study over and over again in flashcards. But hopefully this is a good introduction into schizophrenia, something you can listen back to in the future. And yeah, hopefully this helps and hopefully it can help you in future exams.